Hanging in there. I'd like to uh, speak to two general questions that came up. Um, let's see. The first is just uh, my opinion about psychotropic medication and practice. To be clear, I'm a psychologist, not a physician, and I think it's important to respect boundaries, you know, to professional practice. On the other hand, while I don't prescribe and I don't have, I don't offer professional opinions about specific things, I can certainly speak generally. So, uh, <clears throat> my own view about this is that the brain is a physical organ nested in a physical nervous system, nested in a physical body that's highly affected by a physical world. And so, for me, it's all about pragmatic, skillful means. What's useful for this person, this situation at this time? And if I'm on a meditation retreat, and I know how to practice with a headache, but it's not really on mission for me to be dealing with a headache, I'll take some Advil. I don't know if that's policy here, but I'm telling you. Uh, so... You know, the point is, it's skillful means. I've known, I wear contacts, you know. Um, I'll, I'll spare you my medical history and all the rest of that, but, and how many supplements I take every day. My wife's a nutritionist. Uh, the point is, what's useful? I've known people who had deep personal practice, and yet still, within 18 hours of, of deep practice, deep therapy with me, whatever, the cloud of depression came back. And it was really only when they started engaging their own neurochemistry in various ways that they were able to, to, to for the psychological results to stick. All right? On the other hand, sometimes people do these medicines and it disrupts their capacity to drop into certain kinds of states of being. I, I had a client who was an artist and depressed as well and just really could not find a antidepressant medication that worked in that this uh, medication, my client would say, took the pain away, but it took everything else away with it. And so this person made a choice to just tolerate depressed mood while still being able to, to be an artist. Uh, so it's complicated. And I think that there's sort of, in my view, an appropriate way to think about it and not so appropriate. Not appropriate is to be dogmatic one way or another, to be really rule-driven about conventional medicine or rule-driven against it, dogmatic either way. And also I think it's useful to appreciate that there are multiple approaches. Um, uh, stress is inflammatory and inflammation is depressing. That's a quick two-hop jump from stress to depressed mood through, as one of many pathways, but through the pathway that involves what are called cytokines, chemical messengers that are engaged with the immune system. Inflammation is depressing. So that which is inflammatory, so conditions that are inflammatory, things we're frankly allergic to, people who are, re are factually reactive to mold or food or different things. Wildfires, we've had not so wild in California recently with all the human built structures that are being burnt up in them uh, that we're breathing and now are in the foods we're eating in California. 
not trying to freak you out, you know. But um, so, not, and not to go overboard about it. Some people are fairly impervious to these things. Other people are really affected by them. Being honest about that. So for me, these are useful ways to think about this territory, uh, and also to appreciate that an intervention may work for a while and then it just runs out of gas. It's still kind of a mystery how antidepressants really work, and it's sort of an art. And there are a large number of people that just uh, can't adapt to them. All that said, <clears throat> I think uh, mental practice is not something to uh, devalue. Uh, nobody can patent psychotherapy, so you never see an ad for it. But without speaking against, for example, antidepressants, the average effect size of psychotherapy is average, much better than antidepressants, and particularly in terms of preventing relapse. Often the two together are really the best. So point is that... Uh, mental training really is useful. And like I said, I've known a lot of people who would, uh, you know, work, they spend 10 minutes a day on things that don't matter much, but things that do matter much, they wouldn't spend much time at all. So I think, can you give it 10 minutes a day? Can you give it an hour a day? My rule of thumb is if someone is really kind of motivated at the, the approaching an hour a day of practice and they're still anxious all the time or angry all the time, or addicted all the time, or depressed all the time, then it's really time to look at another level of explanation and intervention. Right. So you want to hear my 10-minute challenge? I'm going to give you the 10-minute challenge. Okay. Uh, these three things, you do these three things, it'll change your day, it'll, then it'll change your life. I tell people. Ready? <laughs> this, this is fast food, right? It's America. But it's the 10-minute challenge. A lot of people won't give it 10 minutes. It starts with the one-minute challenge. As you go through your day, half a dozen times a day, roughly, slow down for a breath. That's 10 seconds or so, or two. Slow down half a dozen times a day to take in the good of some experiencing you're having. Maybe it's a moment of realizing how to be more skillful with a friend or a partner or a family member. Maybe it's just a sense of the relaxing at the end of a workout or friendliness with your dog or the beauty of the hills. That's a minute a day right there. Half a dozen times taking the good. Right there will change your day. Because you're going to be looking for those half dozen moments. Yo, Coach Rick, you know, check them off. Six or so. That's just a minute. It'll change your day. Second, this will take two to three minutes a day tops. No one thing you're trying to grow these days inside yourself. What's one thing at least you're trying to cultivate? Greater patience, greater steadiness of mind, more self-forgiveness, more compassion for those who've trespassed against you. Uh, whatever that you decide. One thing at least. It's kind of your muscle you're working on these days. Maybe it's sharpening your insight into radical impermanence. Maybe it's... Um, regulating a tendency to really go into pretty intense flares of anger, maybe from your childhood. Whatever it is, what's one thing you're working on these days? And that gives hope to lives often that are disorganized and, and, a, and kind of not going so well. If there's at least one thing you're growing and you know you're growing, you know you're working on it, it gives you dignity and respect and if you feel like you're working your way out of trouble, what's one thing that you're working on these days? That'll take another couple of minutes. Because the way to do it, it's the two-stage process. Neurons firing, then wiring. Experience whatever you want to grow, then slow down to help it sink in. 
for a breath or longer, feeling it in your body, focusing on what's rewarding about it. Okay? That's the second part of the 10-minute challenge. And you can feel free to give this to other people if you want. I have no patent on it. The last, for a minute or more every day, I think it's so important, especially for people in modern lives, ideally closer to five minutes a day. The way I'll put it is marinate in deep green. What I mean is rest in what I call the green zone, the deep green in which there's a deeply felt sense of peace, contentment, and love relating to our three needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, which, when they're disturbed or there's a deficit, triggers the craving, broadly defined in the second noble truth, that leads to suffering and harm. If you have an interest in the noble truths, if suffering is the result of craving, what's craving the result of? Biologically, craving is the result of the internal sense in reference to needs of something missing, something wrong, that's invasive or habitual. Wow. That means that as we deeply internalize again and again a felt sense of needs sufficiently met, authentically met, safe enough in the moment, satisfied enough in the moment, connected enough in the moment. It's nice to have more. And there's a sense of enoughness in the core of our being. Even if around that core is discontent or pain or worry or anger, understandably even, in the core of our being, there can be this sense of fullness already. That's the essence of equanimity in the Buddhist notion of you know, inner balance. So as we repeatedly internalize experiences of peace, contentment, and love, as umbrella terms, we build up this core inner, be- inner being uh, that's unshakable, resilient well-being, the green zone. So marinate for a minute or more a day in a deep feeling of the body calming, where you're just resetting, you're coming out of stress and rushing and pressure and multitasking. Peaceful enough, contented enough, connected enough. Or in terms of the three-stage evolution of the brain, which relates to these three needs and their management for safety, satisfaction, and connection, connection, the more or less reptilian brainstem, mammalian subcortex, and primate human neocortex, in terms of our three needs, avoiding, approaching, attaching, safety, satisfaction, connection. For three to five minutes a day, pet the lizard, (laughs) feed the mouse, satisfaction, and hug the monkey. That's the 10-minute challenge. All right? Taking the good, minute or more a day. Second, no one thing you're growing. Three, rest in deep green for at least a few minutes a day. Ten minutes or less. Pretty great. Okay. All right. Next question was really fast. Uh, How can we use these practices for medical issues? Um, I'm not a physician. I'm not giving medical advice. That said, uh, two things. One, the American Medical Association estimates that roughly 50% of the disease burden in the modern world is based on psychological factors, not physical, organic factors. Lifestyle choices, uh, risky behaviors, overeating, drugs, so forth. Also, stress. Um, I should add, factually, gun violence. You know, major medical problem in America, certainly. And um, so... uh, 
you know, as we train, as we develop, as we grow, as we cultivate in uh, those various things we've talked about here, those factors of medical issues tend to go down. Uh, Stress is inflammatory. Upsets are inflammatory. Carrying resentments and regrets and self-criticism and loneliness, all those quote-unquote negative emotions, those wear on the immune system and through that the body as a whole and also other systems in the body. So we can help our medical conditions by removing the psychological factors. We can also train in greater kind of regulation of the visceral core, the GI tract, the heart, the lungs, the, the, the viscera there through calming and marinating in the green zone, deep positive emotion, easing, and uh, through the cultivation of positive emotion. Uh, those build up resources inside us, including um, sort of cognitive surpluses. So we build resources even as we face um, aging and its impact on the brain. Uh, so I, I would say that. Last, as we build these other resources up, we're more able to draw in other resources. We feel more uh, confident when we're talking to the medical professionals to get what we need from them. We're less willing to be patronized and having our heads patted and sent on our way. Nope. I want you to retest this thing. Nope. I'm not feeling better. Nope. Please, wait, wait. We're not done yet. I got one more thing I got to tell you about. You know, we're helped in that way. We're more able to draw on other people, other allies, other resources, relationships, which also can have good impacts on medical issues. And then the last thing is just, man, oh, man, oh, man, the more that your medical issues are hopeless, aging is hopeless. Um, (laughs) The more important it is (laughs) to have some field of efficacy where you can do something, agency, including in, you know, uh, lifting your own spirits or purifying your own mind or or warming your own heart, uh, right? It's more important to have something else that you can focus on. Okay? Okay. Ready for some quiet? I want to touch. So we're on the home stretch now. So I want to talk about quiet a little bit. Um, The more that we tune into body sensations, especially internal body sensations, the more that tends to. downregulate or dial down the volume of verbal chatter because the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere are connected through what's called reciprocal inhibition, fancy term, like a seesaw again. So as we um, increase activation in my right hand, right hemisphere, nonverbal, holistic gestalt processing, that inhibits, that quiets verbal activity centered in regions in the left hemisphere. So one way to help the mind quiet is to really tune in to the body. One of the seven factors of awakening in, in Buddhism is tranquility. Tranquility is really easy to undervalue, especially in our very untranquil culture, right? And protecting, including one to three minutes or five minutes a day of deep green tranquility. It's really good. Right? So we're going to explore this quieting a little bit and some things that might help you. And I want to draw your attention to um, <clears throat> some uh, 
key headlines from the Buddhist meditative tradition. This is kind of like advice from the teacher, the Buddha. Value tranquility and developing trait tranquility. I find myself that as you develop trait tranquility, you actually become more comfortable with excitement because you know you can come back down again and you become more easy with it. I think the Dalai Lama is often used as a good example of this. He can become very childlike and animated and then, you know, in a few moments later, totally still. It's that fluidity. Tranquility supports that. So value tranquility for all kinds of reasons, including the ways that it's protective of the heart. There's good research on how people have the capacity to be more tranquil or more able to manage stress when stressors, big stressors land. Second, uh, track what here is called the feeling tone, which is really the hedonic tone of experience. So I'm kind of leveling with you about some very fundamental and powerful meditative methods uh, that are accessible to all of us. You may have heard the term the four foundations of mindfulness or translated sometimes establishments of mindfulness. These are where to be mindful. One of the four that the Buddha recommends that we be mindful of is the hedonic tone of experience as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So as we tranquilize ourselves, we can help the sense of experiences as intensely pleasant or unpleasant to kind of calm down and appreciate more what's neutral. Which a teacher of mine, Christina Feldman, says the neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, is a gateway to the eventless. Wow, I thought about that sentence from her a lot. The neutral. Is a, is a gateway to the eventless. By eventless, she's referring ultimately to the unconditioned transcendental, where nothing changes. Um, and what I think she really means there is as we become more and more comfortable with, a, with the neutral, we don't need it to become pleasant. We're not bored by it. It's relatively unchanging. In a sense, it's eventless itself as we become more comfortable with, with that as an experience, eventlessness in the mind, just ongoing beige, <laughs> the taste of water, the neutral, you know, uh, the smell of air, just ordinary air, just neutral, uh, then we become more able to open into, in deep, non-ordinary states, potentially the ultimate that's eternal and eventless and timeless. So the neutral. So that's the second suggestion, kind of more comfort with letting the feeling tone of experience, the hedonic tones, kind of tranquilize. Also, in the, these are traditional instructions, especially in the mindfulness of breathing uh, teaching. Tranquilizing what's called perception. What perception means is labeling and categorizing and sometimes often pulling up from memory. So as we quiet the mind, we're disengaging from mental, from verbal activity. The body is becoming calmer. The sense of experience as, um, you know, 
the, the, the momentary, the moment by moment by moment ringing of the alarm bell in the brain. Pleasant this, unpleasant that. Just kind of gets more and more quiet. Also, we stop thinking in abstracting, conceptualizing. We, we reduce categorizing. We stop labeling experiences. Uh, that gets quieter as well. That becomes increasingly tranquil. And these are traditional instructions that we're going to explore in a moment. All right? So is that kind of clear what I'm saying? And again, if, if this doesn't interest you, it's totally okay. On the other hand, if you are interested in, you know, fundamental Buddhist contemplative training, these are really interesting distinctions that are, that are offered uh, from teachers of these practices. All right. So you want to try it? So I'm going to give you a few prompts. Like everything, I'm, I'm doing things fairly quickly in here and briefly, but to give you a flavor of these things that you might explore further on your own, or if you're a long-term meditator, might, might foreground some things you already know. All right. So let's do this practice of quieting. And I'll just kind of move through it. The body, disengaging from the verbal, and then the rest. And throughout all this, it's not about tranquilizing in the sense of taking quaaludes or, you know, <laughs> anesthesia. It's more like just, it could just feel so good to just lay it down. You know, drop the stone. Okay. So beginning here, tranquilizing the body. Perhaps some long exhalations, drawing on what we've trained in already of relaxing. Letting the body become calmer and at ease. Remembering we're doing this purposefully, we are training. And we're following this roadmap from the Buddha about steadying the mind internally and quieting it. As it is said, tranquilizing the bodily formation, the sense of the body. Even if there is pain or tension in your body, the breath can become softer, more at ease.
you might recognize in your body a kind of readiness to act that could be a long-standing habit, including a readiness perhaps to push away a threat or to brace against it. And this too is something that can be more tranquil. I'll be moving through several steps here. Feel free to go at your own pace. In the second step, disengaging from verbal activity. Be aware of getting caught up in streams of verbal thought and see if you can disengage from them. Just don't feed them. It also helps to focus on internal sensations such as breathing internal sensations of the diaphragm, perhaps, or the chest expanding and contracting. If it helps, you can explore imagery, even simply color, but being careful about it getting complicated or drawing you into a little inner movie quieting verbal activity.
in the third step of quieting the mind, being aware of what is pleasant or unpleasant in your experience, while being especially aware and focusing on what is neutral, or simply being okay with experience not being particularly stimulating one way or another. Not getting conceptual about this, just sort of allowing and being comfortable with is, just being. Simply being. without needing to scan for what could be threatening or unpleasant in the body or out in the world. And also, without needing to pursue any pleasure, chase any reward, simply being. Resting in what could be largely or even entirely neutral And as we rest here in the last step, the mind that is becoming increasingly quiet, perhaps with an appropriate background sense of well-being, as your mind quiets, see if you can let go of um, labeling or knowing, allowed not knowing, what sometimes is called beginner's mind. Tranquilizing perception in the sense of conceptualizing, categorizing, or remembering. Present in the moment with a mind that is increasingly quiet.
Taking the last minute here, kind of recognizing what it's like to be more tranquil or quiet, finding what feels good about this, and letting a fundamental quiet sink more and more into you as you sink into it. I'm thinking of um, <clears throat> a phrase used by uh, a teacher, a preacher actually, Howard, I don't think it's Howard Thurman, but he used the phrase quiet eyes. Do you know who that is? Used the phrase quiet eyes. He said, essentially a paraphrase, we can watch a noisy world with quiet eyes. Uh, it reminds me of the Buddha's description of his own kind of upper stages of practice uh, as he was approaching awakening, as best we can gather. Uh, he said that uh, painful, racking feelings arose, but they did not invade my mind and remain. Such a distinction, right? Things come up. All kinds of things can come up. They need not invade and remain. I think that's the fundamental distinction that's so valuable. Or as we can see here from this extended quotation from Upandita, as our mind quiets, in the deepest forms of insight, we see that things change so quickly that we can't hold on to anything. And eventually the mind lets go of clinging. Letting go brings equanimity. The greater the letting go, the deeper the equanimity. In Buddhist practice, and I believe we could extend this to just about any kind of practice, we work to expand the range of life experiences in which we are free. 
That's the point. It's easy to be free when you're lying there in a hammock and you're getting a mani-pedi and IV chocolate. You know? like, no worries, mate. <laughs> what about when you're stuck in traffic or someone's giving you a one-star review on Amazon? can't believe that. Because you know? Kindle didn't work on their device. Like, what? I don't... It's not my fault, but anyway... <laughs> we stay free in those first world problems definitely um, so that's that's such a wonderful for me practice here how do we expand the range in which we're free any question or comment about quieting or anything else before we slide into kind of last couple practices about contentment and that we'll finish up on it by five yeah over there that's great yeah um, can you hear me Okay. Yes. So, um, oh, well, I'm emotional. I was going to try to keep it in. But what's the, um, so I understand how um, trauma influences my view on um, relaxing. It's not safe. Yep. And, and I, you know, and I, I get that and I work with that. But what I'm interested in knowing is what is the, um, history of the primordial man around okay relaxing is one thing right because guard you never know there's a big mammoth you know woolly that's going to attack us but but what about um what about this piece neurologically in terms of the mind when when i feel joy i get scared Mm. You know, and then I then I mean, not all the time, but I'm just being really candid here. Yeah. I don't want anybody to talk to me about this afterwards because I'm not interested. But I really want to know. I'm sure that's not just me, no. but um, I just wonder if there's a possibility of that going away. <laughs> so well, I'd... I'm really okay, actually. I oh yeah, I get I that. Um, I well, thanks, thanks for saying that. Really, and. Um, I could think of different, so I'll just offer some things that I've seen and I've I've heard people who really are specialists in trauma, unlike me, although I've had a fair amount of experience helping people with it. Uh, so, and, and to be clear, I, I kind of, I reserve the word for the real thing. You know, I, I would say I have not had trauma. I've had many painful, deeply hurtful experiences, but I would not, you know, I I want to be clear with you, like what I've experienced and not experienced. So just some things people say, one, uh, the joy then can sometimes lead to a lowering of guard, Mm. which then leads to a fear, understandably, or expectation of attack. Very understandable. So that's something to be aware of, potentially. Right. That part I get, but I'm interested in the development of the brain in terms of the whole, you know, the rep... Reptilian part of the brain, is there a correlation there? Or is that just simply if the primitive animal was feeling joy, then his guard was down? I mean, like, I'm just interested in the origin, or is there? I want to make, if I'm getting it right, I think that, in effect, if you think of it, trauma is is a form of learning, or trauma is the event, but when we say trauma, we, in effect, learn from the trauma. So the evolutionary origin of our capacity and that of other animals, mice, squirrels, cats, and dogs, to be changed by their experiences, that's 
general. And we are really, really designed to be seriously changed by negative events. Right? If you survive that attack in the baboon troop or mm. 200 million years ago, or if you survive it, you should forever after be really freaked out about it ever happening again to make sure it never happens again. That, that's a general purpose thing. Uh, in terms of an individual's life course and what they can do about it, which that is especially what interests me, well, can, what can we do about it? You know, um, mindfulness of the function served by our own reactions is really useful. So if the if anxiety on the heels of joy, it serves a function to make sure we keep our guard up. So then the question becomes, can I serve that useful function through more skillful means oh, okay. that have less cost? Okay. Can I keep my guard up? Can I make sure I'm not being seduced or I'm not being tricked here, conned here. Can I can I maintain that while simultaneously protecting the joy? See, can I serve the yeah. function? And I'm actually like skilled at that, getting better and better. I was just <clears throat> wondering yeah. beyond trauma, just the human being and the evolution of human being. Yeah. Not that it can be tested that if, you know, wild animals were feeling joy, did they suddenly get scared? I'm just thinking. I'm yeah. just wondering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, just maybe I'll just wrap on this one point, which is kind of a segue. It's really interesting to observe um, animals in the wild. And most of the time, they're fair, they're, they're, especially if they have reasonable access to food and, and protection from predators, uh, most of the time, as best we can gather, they seem pretty chill. And that goes to the Sapolsky point about why zebras don't get ulcers. Right? They're just kind of hanging out, eating grass, but they're vigilant. They're meeting their needs. It's a really key point. We can meet our needs on the, while resting in the green zone. We don't have to go into the red zone just because needs are challenged. That's a breakthrough insight right there. And so the resting state, interestingly, uh, I think uh, the equilibrium condition, our natural condition, is not to be traumatized. We're very susceptible to that kind of learning for biological reasons to pass on genes that pass on genes. But that's not our resting state. Just because we're very vulnerable to trauma learning doesn't mean that's our home base. The home base of zebras, mice, monkeys, and humans is peace, contentment, and love. But it's, is that really it, a reality? If you overcome trauma, is that a reality? To be peaceful at rest? Like, right, does that really right. happen? Well, finishing on this, uh, you, you asked about the species altogether. It's my view, that's, and it's plausible biologically, that much as... I had a spiritual teacher for a while who wrote a book about food that, who said the eating gorilla comes in peace. In other words, when animals have their basic needs met, and they don't have to be perfect, but the basic needs met, we default to a resting state that conserves resources and is sustainable and in which we repair and refuel ourselves. The resting state is the home base of a system. Trauma is like 
hitting of system hard and it goes into all these out-of-bound conditions, that's not its home base. That's an, that's an adaptive capacity to learn from that saber-toothed tiger or that aggression in the primate band or experiences as humans. Um, but it's not a resting state. So I'm saying two things here. First, I'm saying something really to me very hopeful, that the resting state is not fear, frustration, and heartache. Or as the Buddha taught, the resting state is not hatred, greed, and ill will. We're able to go there. And unfortunately, we're very vulnerable to getting stuck there. And we're very vulnerable to being manipulated by others who try to scare us or trigger us into greed or drive us against them tribalistic conflicts. We're really vulnerable to that. But that's not our biological resting state, really, which is incredibly hopeful that our home base is a pretty good place. You know, now the question then becomes: If someone's been driven from home, understandably through traumatic life experiences, especially when vulnerable, um, can we come home again? And I myself am very hopeful about that possibility. From reading uh, people who've done that work and have been my teachers in this territory and in their own example, there may always be a vulnerability, a kind of trick knee from a terrible accident. Uh, so that a certain kind of things really get you going. So if you're going to talk to that authority figure or go home for the holidays, you do it under certain conditions, you know. Um, but you could still have a full life. So I'm very hopeful about that possibility. Thank I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. You're a gift. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To use the skiing and trick knee metaphor, you may need to avoid moguls, but you can still enjoy the mountains. Anyway, yeah. And it's really great news to think about biologically. If you're interested in this at all, um, in the way I'm talking about the transition from the second to third noble truth, how do we rest in the third noble truth in which there's no craving that's invading our mind and remaining? And one way we do that is we build up again and again this felt sense of being home. Peace, contentment, and love, really broadly defined. Good news. Okay, a couple more, and then we're going to marinate in contentment and finish by five. All right, then back there. Okay, first you, then you. Okay, how about that? Great. Hi. Yes, I feel like my biggest demon over time has been, and I think probably this, I say, I bring this up in this audience because I think a lot of people share it, is that the world is full of enemies, and our histories and our memories have a lot of, you know, in confrontations with enemies. Yeah. And I feel like I just keep letting them in, inviting them in, like, come on in, you know, go away, you know, happy, good place, or, or people who are supportive of me, you know, come, come in, enemies. And so I feel, I feel like, you know, a lot of um, the world, you know, places, things, people have become freighted with completely unnecessary negative emotions. Yeah. And it's sort of like how to rewrite, you know, retemplate all of those, you know, commonplace things because they could so easily kind of switch, you know, do a 180, I'm sure of it, so that they can be friendly, welcoming, or even just neutral, not enemies. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at with all of this teaching. And it's somewhat new to me, even though I've been saturated and living in the Bay Area for, you know, a very long time. Um, but because I keep lighting the enemies in, like, that's the right thing to do. Oh, boy. So, that's great. Okay. First, I want to stress one thing. It's interesting that... Uh, you know, resting in what's authentically, I'll call it the green zone, where in, in a way that is genuine, you feel protected and strong and, 
and calm and all right right now, peace. In contentment, there's a sense of enoughness. It's far from perfect, but there's an enoughness, also love. Resting in the green zone refuels us for the world flashing red. So the worse the world is, the more important it is to refuel and repair and find refuge and uh, feed our own roots again. So it's, 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 right. so I want to just stress that point. Second, uh, I think it's really important to be clear about our adversaries and to be clear about the people who really are out to get us or who are not acting in good faith. And to be clear about that, including those who are oppressing others and exploiting others and rigging the system, rigging the game so it's tilted toward ever greater concentrations of wealth and thus power. You know? and, to, and to see that, it's personal opinion here, I, um, there are different examples in the history of, the Buddha, of Buddhism. The Buddha lived in a time that was patriarchal and aristocratic and feudal and so forth, and he didn't challenge the formal power structure of his day. On the other hand, he and his followers were prepared at some serious risk to be very truth-speaking, including to power. And um, that's in the tradition, pretty clearly. So, what to do with these associations to the enemy, you know? A lot of material about that. There, you may know there are a lot of practices, or or you may not know, it in compassion, where we work traditionally with, with increasingly challenging others. It goes back to increasing the range of experiences in which we're free. It's easy to be compassionate and kind toward our benefactors, those who've helped us. It's pretty easy with our friends, although they drive us crazy sometimes, including our family members, perhaps. Neutral, still pretty easy. The so-called difficult person, or sometimes called the enemy. Yeah. Whoa, that's more challenging. I think politically there are many examples where it can be particularly challenging to bring certain beings to mind uh, and then to imagine compassion, you know? So then the, what do you do about it? And I think there's a lot of teaching about this. I'll just kind of hit some high points really fast. One is to always be authentic. If we push ourselves faster than is real, you can't do it. It's not good for us, right? Second, to distinguish between compassion and justice. We can have... Um, an empathic recognition of suffering over there, even for suffering that is a tiny fraction of the suffering that person is causing others. We can have compassion for that person over there while believing very firmly that justice should be pursued and accomplished and the truth should come out. It's useful to distinguish that. And then another thing is to ask this is a good saying from Alcoholics Anonymous. Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for others to die. Right? So as we brood on these enemy images, as it, as it is said, there's a term I learned in diversity training, no enemy images. You know, adversaries, sure. But do we, if we, we, do we need to let them invade our minds and preoccupy us? Uh, I just think that's a useful distinction to realize that we do it for ourselves to get them out of our heads, to get them out of our minds, and to not let them disturb us so much anymore. 
uh, it goes back to that uh, uh, saying that one is wise who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless. You know, the fearless aspect of that. So I, I think about all those things and uh, I find that I'm challenged myself sometimes, you know, at certain moments. And I, so I think appreciating that this can be very challenging to do and sometimes it's just not possible uh, where you just go, no, I'm just, it's not real for me. I'm not going to go there with that person. What they did to me, what they did to others, what they're doing to people today, I'm just not going to go there. But then you think, well, what would be within reach to explore this inner freedom that the Buddha talked about? And, yeah, I'll leave it there. Okay, okay, good. Uh, all right, one more person, and then we're going to contentment. Thank you. Unless I think of something else for this really important thing you're bringing up. Yeah. Thank you. I have an appreciation for the process of letting go, especially when I hold on to things. I find that I have desire and hunger for things. Um, I'm finding that the deeper I go into this practice, the more I lose the the more I lose the drive because I'm so happy. I'm honestly I feel very grateful. I'm full of love. I feel I don't need money. Um, I don't need more in my life. Where this poses a problem is I own a business. I'm supposed to be franchising. And I have been, my mother, she knows, I've been at a standstill for years because I now lack the desire for money. I lack the desire for power. What am I supposed to do? (laughs) I don't know. I'm a Sicilian. I don't understand this Buddhist concept. I'm stuck in the middle. Please help. (laughs) That's great. I, um, I, I get it. Okay, so... That's good. Well, it's a. I I want to say one more thing about the the last thing about um, what do we do with people that are have really harmed us or others, and it's real, you know, and they still preoccupy us. The Buddha emphasized a lot the the dangers of he called ill will, ill will. And um, in terms of the Eightfold Path, the second that's typically listed is wise intention. Wise view starts, wise intention kind of keeps on going. Um, wise intention has three elements to it. It's really interesting. Why did the Buddha allocate these three, ele- these three elements to wise intention? What are the wise intentions? One, to uh, be disenchanted about and not craving or greedy for uh, you know, pleasures of various kinds. Enjoy them. This is the middle way without getting caught up in them, including around possessiveness. All right. The other two intentions have to do with non-harming of self and others and not bearing ill will towards self and others. That's interesting. So if we're caught up, it's interesting that he allocated two out of three of the wise intentions to social life and to negative reactions to other people or ourselves. Non-harming, the intention to not harm, the intention not to carry ill will, will being deliberate. If we get reactive, we get reactive. 
but to deliberately bang on that case or have fantasies of retribution or vengeance, uh, we're very vulnerable to that, you know, including the ways in which we evolved in small bands. The natural social group for a human is 40 or 50 people that you live with most of your life, right? Uh, around other bands, many of whom were dangerous. So we're evolved to cooperate with us and kind of tend to fear them. We have to be careful about that and the ways that those vulnerabilities can get revved up by authoritarian demagogues or bullies of various kinds. So so I just want to kind of emphasize that whole thing and to really explore the distinction, which for me has been incredibly helpful to bring to my mind people who are exemplars of of clarity and dignity and potency and self-respect and fearlessness while not carrying hate in their hearts. It's possible to do both. You can think of your own examples, maybe people from history, people in the current moment, and to realize we're actually more able to speak truth to power and to stand up if we're not having our hearts poisoned and corroded by all of these enemy images that are landing and invading and remaining. Okay. So this one about passion. Yep. So, um, a lot of material about that, I could say. Um, well, let's see here. It is, so a couple of things. So first, it is possible to pursue goals while being addicted to the results, attached to the results, pressured and stressing along the way. That's the classic MO, isn't it, for peak performance, achievement. More and more, it's being understood that that way of accomplishing goals you know, intense and pushing and pressurizing ourselves, uh, getting caught up in possession, making ever more money, can burn out over time. And it's costly along the way. Second, is there another way? Is there another way to, to be enthusiastic, to sustain passion over time for something we really care about? And uh, I think there are many examples, and I know this territory myself, where we feel contented already while it's also authentic that we're drawn to contribute more or explore more or enjoy more or to keep playing the game because it interests us. We're drawn in that direction. I think that's, that's really possible. It may be, I don't know your situation, and I know your mom's listening. So uh, it may be this. You know, it's just not true for us to kind of do something. We just don't have a feeling for it anymore. We don't have that fire in the belly anymore. And then the best thing to do is to think about what to do. Sometimes we just make ourselves, you know, play out the game for another couple of years. Because I used to do business consulting because we just have to do it. And we just do what we have to do. Other times we hand it off or we kind of move into a different role. We find a different place. Uh, but one thing I've noticed, I'll finish on this with a little story, then we'll meditate and end. So I had a friend who went to Asia as a monk for many years um, and came back. Uh, and I asked him once if he met anybody who was enlightened. And he said, well, in that tradition, uh, it's not like you have a white light moment and a week later you have your own TV show. You know? <laughs> they like watch you. <laughs> you know? Including, how do you deal when things don't go well? Right? And he said, yeah, there were people who were considered to be fully cooked or really close to it, really far along. So I said, what were they like? He said, well, first, they all had a lot of energy. They didn't just sit around on their cushion, as it were, blissing out. They wanted to help things one way or another. Now, maybe there are other things you want to have your natural 
capacities flow outward into other than this thing. It just doesn't speak to you anymore. Okay, but uh, the kind of notion that when people do inner practice that it's somehow self-indulgent, just, I don't think, I think there's so many, there are 99 examples of people who've done a lot of practice and are really have more to offer and want to offer it than that one example of someone who's a self-indulgent, navel-gazing jerk. So, uh, that's the first. And the second thing he said about these people, which kind of goes to what Upandita is saying here, he said they were always the same. What do you mean by that? He said, well, sometimes they were loud, sometimes they were quiet, sometimes they were active, sometimes they were still, sometimes they were stern and fierce, and other times they were kind of goofy. But they were always the same in this way. If you were really nice to them, they loved you. If you were really mean to them, they loved you. (laughs) Their love was unconditioned. Now, they may set you out of their temple, or they may say, no, we're not going to do that, or they, they may organize a demonstration in the streets, but in their heart they were free in a stability of their loving kindness, and by extension, the stability of their contentment and their inner peace. And I think that's lovely just to think about. Uh, we can still be productive while maintaining that stability in the core of ourselves. Well, let's, let's work on that stability for the last few minutes. So I just want to talk about contentment here as we do a little practice for about five minutes and then we'll finish up, okay? All right. So contentment is, I think, a, a really underrated experience. It really means essentially a quality of well-being with no wish for the moment to be other than what it is. There might be ambition present, healthy passion, problem solving, in the context of fullness already. Really interesting to explore contentment. In contentment is the undoing of craving. It's really interesting to explore contentment. So let's just kind of focus in here. It can help to begin with gratitude. So we're doing a little meditation here. I encourage you to bring to mind one or more things, perhaps people, good fortune in your life, that you've been given. Gratitude is about thankfulness. Having received so much already, You're taking contentment as your object of meditation. Encouraged by things like thankfulness. It can also help as a factor of contentment, if it works for you, to have a sense of so many things accomplished already 
in your life? So many steps taken, so many words generated. It's okay to aim for more. It's okay for there to have been disappointment. And still so much accomplished already. So that you can nourish the feeling of having already arrived. Instead of chasing the next thing, having arrived already. Now, in this moment, already arrived. What's that feel like as a factor of contentment? In contentment, it can be very helpful to be aware of craving or drivenness falling away. Chasing of rewards falling away. Possessiveness or pressure falling away. Gently, increasingly crowded out by contentment. If it's helpful, periodically renew the feeling of contentment, the pleasurable, enjoyable, oh, what a relief, contentment.
you might imagine what it would be like to go to work, manage a home, raise a family, make art, help the world with an underlying felt sense of contentment along the way. What might that be like? And as we finish up here, I'd like to offer a final quotation from the Buddha. And before I read it, simply say for myself that I've so appreciated your attention here in this pretty substantive material uh, that really does engage depth of practice. And to remind you that if you want the slides, be sure and sign up for them. And be sure to sign out if you want CEUs. So feeling contented already, even without our CEUs. <laughs> As it is said that the Buddha said, this is peaceful. This is sublime. The calming of all mental constructions, the letting go of all supports, the extinguishing of craving, dispassion, cessation, nirvana. It's a path that is also available to us along the way. And I really wish you well. And to say again what Joseph Goldstein said to me a long time ago, keep going. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thank you, Faust.